Hello and welcome back to Powerlines, from Ukraine to the world, a podcast from Message Heard and the Kiev Independent. I'm Jakub Parushinsky. Each week, we're going to be analyzing the undercurrents of the war in Ukraine, bringing you analysis from across the globe to explain its context and consequences as the war continues. In this, our final episode of our second season, we're taking a look at the big picture, an analysis of the macroeconomic challenges that Ukraine is going to be facing in the years ahead. War is money, in more ways than one. It takes a lot of resources to put troops on the battlefield and build tanks. But the economy is also one of the fronts of the war. Since the beginning of the full-scale invasion, Russia has tried to dismantle and disrupt Ukrainian economic activity. And Ukraine has withstood, to a surprising extent. That happened because it had done a lot of preparatory work, it had a banking system that was robust, with a large role of the state that avoided bank runs, and with Western aid. Actually, a lot of Western aid. Over the past two years, it has been astounding the level to which major Western economies have come together to support Ukraine. But things are looking a lot grimmer now. The US aid package of over 60 billion is held up in Congress due to internal politics. And for a long time, a European package of 50 billion euros was held up by Hungary's Prime Minister, Viktor Orban. After a long period of negotiations and finally some deft maneuvering, the EU is moving forward with its aid package. In the words of Donald Tusk, Europe doesn't have a Ukraine fatigue problem, it has an Orban fatigue problem. But Ukraine is in a very difficult spot right now. It's essentially living paycheck to paycheck, with billion-dollar gaps to be filled every month from different sources. And looking forward, well, that's not going to get a lot better. We already have the prospect of a long war ahead of us, and after that, there's reconstruction. So where can we find the funds for that? One of the solutions? Seized or immobilized Russian assets. There are hundreds of billions of Russian assets in Western financial systems that could be used to rebuild Ukraine. Then there's also the question of internal politics in Ukraine. We've seen an increasingly visible feud between the commander-in-chief Valery Zaluzhny and President Volodymyr Zelensky, which on February 8th led to Zaluzhny being dismissed in his role and replaced by General Alexander Sirsky, who previously served as the commander of Ukraine's ground forces. Now, you can read what you want into the smiling photos of Zelensky and his outgoing commander-in-chief. But the reality is that Salushny is one of the most trusted figures in Ukraine, a potential presidential frontrunner, and a beacon for opposition figures. Zelensky, on the other hand, is feeling more and more pressure. And we're likely to see this dynamic play out further in the months and years to come. But the story is actually much bigger than this. Ukraine needs a reset both for domestic and international reasons. After two years of full-scale invasion, people are tired and they need some kind of vision of how to move forward. A report published by KI Insights on February 2 looked at the need and what a potential government reshuffle could look like. And it was confirmed a few days later by Zelensky himself that he was thinking very much about a reset. But that also has implications for the economy and for Ukraine's financial stability. To get into all of this, I spoke to Timothy Ash. Timothy has been an economist for 30 years, working for some of the most prestigious banking institutions in the world over that time. 
His focus has been on the economics of emerging Europe, the Middle East, and Africa, particularly Ukraine, Russia, and Turkey. You can find his writing on Chatham House, SIPA, and his excellent substack at Tash Econ blog. We started off by talking about how it is that Ukraine has sustained its economy so effectively over the past two years of war. Hi, Timothy. Thank you for joining us on Powerlines. My pleasure. Good to be here. So maybe to start, we're just shy of two years into the full-scale invasion of Ukraine, obviously two incredibly difficult years for the country. And I wanted to start with looking at the economy. And so basically the question is, how is it that Ukraine has managed to hold up so well? When we see sort of photos and videos of what's happening in Kiev and major cities, life keeps going on. We've actually had 2023 results for a lot of companies that look relatively positive. In some cases, they've actually even achieved some of their best results for quite a while now. How is that possible? Well, you're right. Absolutely remarkable in terms of the durability and resilience of the Ukrainian economy. Latest figures suggest that uh, maybe the economy grew over 5% last year, which is pretty astounding in, in a war scenario. And the fact that, you know, banks have worked, money has worked, the economy has continued to function, infrastructure, the railways work better than in the UK, which is uh, pretty extraordinary. Maybe not that surprising for, from a UK perspective, but, you know, basic infrastructure works. And that's extraordinary given the scale of the attacks uh, from Russia. If I think about the economy, I think it's a reflection of a few things. Firstly, you know, the remarkable resilience and innovation of Ukrainians. I mean, we've seen that in the conduct of the war, the use of technology. But I think, you know, in general, you know, the, the countries come together. It's about survival. Uh, there's no option but to, to kind of carry on. And that's, that's provided a lot of that durability, right, uh, the coming together. Secondly, the fact that the banking system works, currencies works, all those kind of things. You know, I think that's partially a reflection of the reforms that were instigated after Euromaidan 2015. I mean, one of the things I've highlighted and I've written over the recent years is, is that actually, you know, they did sort the banking sector out. They reduced the number of banks, closed a lot of banks that were money laundering or corrupt institutions. It became a lot more resilient. Central bank itself was massively reformed. It's a proper central bank. It's respected. It's trusted. It runs, uh, well, it ran inflation targeting certainly before the full-scale invasion. It's a, it's a credible institution which runs proper policy, right? I mean, the, the policy responses to, in response to the, the, the full-scale invasion were, you know, very, very orthodox and credible, right? And then finally, you know, in the end, you know, the, the full-scale invasion had an enormous cost on the economy, no doubt about it, right? I mean, in 22, probably real GDP declined by about a third. That was a really significant hit. Obviously, budget revenues suffered big drawdown. Budget deficit you know, increased to something like 20% of GDP. Export revenues, obviously a lot of big exporting entities, enterprises were forced out of production, weren't able to export. So there's a big hit, obviously, to the trade position and the current account position. But really critical has been the provision of Western financial support, not just military support, but, you know, the, the budget and balance of payment support. It's been running around 40 billion a year now for the, the past two years. And that's filled budget financing gaps. It's helped support the balance of payments. It's helped the central bank build reserves to just around $40 billion, which is, you know, close to record highs. That's provided stability for the exchange rate. That's really important in terms of inflation. But also on the fiscal side, 
the fact that they haven't had to resort to monetary financing of a deficit. Obviously, you know, they have, they've not been printing money, but they've been able to pay wa- soldiers' wages, pensions, public sector salaries, all those kind of things. You know, that's, that's certainly helped avoid a devaluation, hyperinflation spiral. It's meant that the government has functioned and worked, and the economy more generally has worked. So it's a combination of those three, I would argue, reforms instigated since 2015, the innovation shown by Ukrainians and bravery, but also the Western financial support that has been forthcoming, certainly in the last two years. Thank you. I think that's that's a fantastic overview. And it's really astounding to see sort of the transformation that Ukrainian banking has gone through. But I think it's also really interesting what you mentioned about the back end of sort of the, the banking system that's gone through a major cleanup. Back in the day, sort of before Euromaidan, there was a lot of non-performing loans, a lot of corruption, a lot of related party sort of transfers of wealth. Now that's all been relatively cleaned up. Looking forward a bit, because in one sense, you know, Ukraine has gone through these two years very battered, very bruised, but, you know, continuing to function as a state, as an economy. And obviously, one of the things that is in the back of a lot of people's minds is how do you rebuild the country? Looking forward, what do you see as the sort of major challenges. And I'm thinking about things like, for example, the demographics, a lot of the labor force has left. How do you kind of manage around that? There's actually quite a bit of buildup of debt uh, that continues to be issued. And as far as I know, it's coming in at a very, at a relatively high interest rate, all things considered. So how do you see that journey going forward? Well, lots of issues there. On the one part, I'm relatively optimistic in terms of, you know, once the war ends, I think Ukraine is going to be a a really exciting recovery and reconstruction story, right? The base is very low. As I mentioned, real GDP, around 30% was lost. There will be a big reconstruction spend. A lot of Western finance official money is going to come into the country. There's mention of, of use of frozen Russian assets as well. And then there's the innovation that I mentioned earlier in terms of allowing the economy to to endure during the invasion, you know, that innovation, I think, will be applied to the recovery and reconstruction. It, I, I've referred to it as the state of Israel kind of moment for, for Ukraine, maybe not state of Israel as reflect to the Gaza conflict at the moment, but the fact that, you know, you have a country that has no other option but to innovate to survive and develop to survive. And that, for me, provides a, you know, a, a a really positive recovery story. Also, you know, one reason why Ukraine hasn't developed in the last 30 odd years was the lack of an EU accession perspective, unlike countries like Poland, Czech Republic, all those kind of countries. I think we now actually have that. I mean, I think there is firm commitment from the EU to pull Ukraine along the EU accession path. Obviously, there's no date, but I think for international business, that's really, really important. You know, the fact that the West or Europe is committed to bring Ukraine in, it will act as a blueprint for reform. A lot of the problems around corruption, rule of law, all those kind of things that were big problems in the run-up to the invasion, they will begin to be ticked off and, and addressed in that accession process. So that's kind of really positive, really encouraging. Issues for me are, as you mentioned, the return of the population. They need security. They need basic public services, hospitals, schools, roads, all those kind of things need to work. It's going to be a challenge. But, you know, the other issues I would say are, you know, financing it and then the institutional framework around recovery and reconstruction. I'm not too sure that, I mean, you're probably going to ask me questions further on, but in terms of the West of the state of Western financing, I mean, what we know 
is the losses incurred by Ukraine in terms of the economy. Obviously, there was the World Bank report some months back. I think it estimated $411 billion worth of losses by Ukraine. That's building, we could imagine, total costs to Ukraine of between $500 billion and $1 trillion when the war eventually ends. The reconstruction spend, obviously, it's a relatively small economy, $200 billion in the ramps of the invasion. Uh, there's question marks about uh, absorption capacity, you know, how much can of reconstruction money can Ukrainian source? But I would think, the way to think of it in my mind is, the cost of supporting Ukraine during the war has been about $100 billion a year. About $40 billion of budget support and about $60 billion of, of military support from Western countries. I would think in peacetime, when you think about the recovery, it's going to be something of the order of $50 billion a year, I would think, mm -hmm. of the need for reconstruction and continuing budget and, and financial support. They're big numbers. And I think, you know, I'm a little bit unsure still about how those those kind of longer term commitments are going to be put together. So basically, if I'm sort of to rephrase it slightly, so the reconstruction would probably look like a decade of 50 billion level sort of investments in rebuilding the country, developing new businesses, um, new industrial capacity, et cetera. So it's sort of like it, it's not that all of that money is going to come in at one moment, but rather we're talking about a certain period of time during which the country is essentially rebuilt piece by piece. Look, it's it's finger-in-the-air stuff. Of no course. one really yeah. knows. You know, my finger's as good as anyone else's. I would think, you know, that's the size that I think, you know, obviously, 50 billion a year, the economy will be growing over that period. It, it's it's a large chunk of GDP in the early years, as later years, as, as you see real appreciation, probably strong levels of real GDP growth. It will decline as a share of GDP. But I think that's the order that we should be thinking of in terms of this particular project. And as I've written and argued, I, I think Ukraine's successful uh, recovery and reconstruction should be the number one uh, strategic priority of the West. You know, I, I've covered the region for a long time. I started off as a Soviet studies person, then I moved into transition economics. So I followed the development of emerging European economies in that move from plan to market in the early 90s, and then the e-accession drive. I think this project is as important as the transition from plan to market that the West helped to finance in the period 89-91, right? It, it's really important. That its economy is put back on its feet so it's able to, to fund its own defense, which is a front line for the West, right? And it needs to be taken seriously. So, you know, we need to get this right. Uh, it's a big investment uh, from the West. It's obviously a big investment also from Ukrainians. Uh, and we need to be really crystal clear in, again, the institutional framework around it, how we fund it, what are the priorities, what the Ukrainian economy should look like going forward. I mean, obviously, the traditional industries that dominated before the invasion, all of those are no longer there, right? I mean, a lot of industrial capacity, old industrial capacity has been destroyed. It's a blank piece of paper in many respects. I mean, what, you know, and it's an opportunity, I think, as well, to rebuild Ukraine's economic profile. That's also quite an interesting question. So you, you mentioned that there's one version of this, which is essentially when the war ends. I think there's also probably several shades of gray in between that, where we have a essentially a ceasefire or something, you know, people are talking about a Korea scenario where there's a chunk of Ukrainian territory that continues to be occupied by Russia, but essentially the sort of the front lines are more or less frozen and there's a buildup of Ukrainian military capacity, but also a reconstruction that is sort of 
anchored along a Israel slash Korea model, which might not be the the thing that a lot of people are hoping for, but it's actually not that bad if you think about it, right? Both countries have managed to build, not looking at the past sort of several months in Israel, they've managed to build quite successful economies, societies, countries, right? In both cases. So is that something that is also being considered from an investor perspective? Look, I mean, uh, as, as you unfortunately Ukrainians know, I mean, the the invasion didn't start, you know, in 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 February twenty two, right? I mean, obviously Russia's interference in in Ukraine, you could argue, goes back decades. But actually, you know, think about the annexation of Crimea, then the intervention in Donbass in 2014, 2015. And, you know, you had mints one, mints two, and, you know, the Ukrainian economy continued to function. Investment happened. If you think from a fiscal perspective, you know, Ukraine uh, restructured debts in 2015 and from a starting point of 90% debt GDP went down to sub 50%, right? Uh, foreign investors bought Euro Ukrainian euro bonds in that period, post mints one, mints two, before the invasion. They were willing to invest in, in the Ukrainian sovereign story. They were willing to invest in corporates and, and banks. There was relative security in, across much of Ukraine. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, if we're imagining a scenario like a North South Korea, scenario in Israel, you know, still the, the vast majority of Ukrainian territory will be in the hands of the Ukrainian government, right? I mean, Ukraine as is at the moment, yeah, forget the numbers, but let's say something like 15, 17% of Ukrainian territory is occupied. But the vast bulk of the country, you know, is still in, in Ukrainian government hands and is relatively safe. And I think um, there will be lots of investment opportunities. And I, I think people in will come in as long as there's relative security there is strong Western financial and military backing to help its security. And there is this EU accession perspective, and also a reform perspective, right? I mean, yeah. I think what's clear is Ukrainians have shown great bravery in, in fighting in their defense and our defense. When the war ends or reduces in intensity, they'll want a different Ukraine, right? They'll want a Ukraine that's not dominated by oligarchs, where the rule of law works, where European values are in effect, and Ukraine's going to be a better place to, to live, right? So I think there is there, there will be a drive for reform that's certainly going to help uh, inward investment into the country. So we've danced around the sort of the elephant in the room, I think, for a while now, which is sort of where the money is going to come from. So I remember a year ago, half a year ago at the London Recovery Conference, there was a lot of talk every time you talked about Ukrainian recovery, you know, people like Andrew Forrest, who sort of launched this idea of a Marshall Plan for Ukraine and, and I think committed half a billion of his own funds to uh, sort of set it up. Organizations like BlackRock, Goldman Sachs were mentioned. Right now, that doesn't seem like it will be the first line of capital that moves in. So there's a question of how do you find funds to essentially start kickoff where does sort of the first 50 billion come from or where does a portion of that at least comes from? One of the options, of course, that is being discussed is seizing Russian assets or paying interest off of these to Ukraine. Is that sort of where the first sort of block of capital is going to come from in your view? Yeah, I mean, I was very critical of the London recovery conferences and the Lugano conferences. There was a lot of focus on the private sector, Yeah, right? The private sector... Uh, will do the heavy lifting. And, and I think that was, it was a bit dis disingenuous, dishonest from Western governments. I mean, I'm in the private sector. I work for a big asset manager. The private sector will not, in the early years, provide that level of financing because 
you know, there is the long track record of difficulties of private investment, foreign private investment into Ukraine in the run up to the invasion, rule of law, governance, all those kind of issues. And they will be slow to change and, and it was slow to rebuild foreign investors confidence, despite the fact that I've said that, you know, this is a huge opportunity. I think private investors will be pretty cautious. And also there's obviously the security concerns as well. There will be some, you know, private investment, it will be cautious. Think more like single digits in terms of billion dollars a year, but nowhere near 50 billion. And I, I think the the reality is that Ukraine's defense you know, the defense and its victory in war and then successful recovery. I mean, we should think of it as a Western public good, right? This is in the West's interest to make sure that Putin's aggression fails, Putin is defeated in Ukraine, Ukraine wins the war and becomes a, a buffer uh, or a, though it's certainly the front line against future Russian aggression. So it should have a strong economy, a strong military able to defend itself and, and, and help us, right? So, you know, that costs money. I mean, that's the reality. It's, um, and we need to invest in that. Now, I obviously this week we've had some good news in terms of Viktor Orban's efforts to block the 50 billion euros of, of EU financing for Ukraine. That's 50 billion euros of support committed for the period 24 to 27. So over a four-year period, that's now been signed off. That's encouraging. But unfortunately, you know, the 61 billion US support package is stuck in US Congress, and it doesn't look likely that that is going to be approved at the, this point in time anyway. The harsh reality, I think, is the politics of the world uh, at the moment is there's a global cost of living crisis. It's very hard for Western governments to sell the story to their own electorates, their own taxpayers, that we need to be paying 50 billion a year, well, actually $100 billion a year in war and 50 billion uh, likely dollars a year in peace to, to help Ukraine. I mean, that's just the stark reality. Perhaps we can sell the message better. You know, we need to go out there and we need to tell our taxpayers uh, that, you know, this is an investment in our defense. If we don't invest in Ukraine, you know, kleptocracy, autocracy will win. Our whole system of government will be on threat. I think that's, we need to do that anyway. But, you know, at the moment, that the, the real politic in Western democracies is it's very difficult to get taxpayer sign-off, right? Yeah. For those kind of numbers. And I think the only realistic source of providing that scale of financing for Ukraine is ac accessing, you know, the estimated 300 to 350 billion dollars of central bank of russia reserves that are immobilized in our jurisdictions in fact you know i think it's political suicide for western liberal market democracies to actually not use those resources to fund ukraine's defense and then recovery and reconstruction but instead think that they can go to taxpayers first and and basically take money from western taxpayers to pay for ukraine's defense and then recovery and reconstruction and not go after frozen Russian assets. It's almost as though there's a lot of debate on frozen Russian assets. And again, we, we're probably going to go into that a little bit later in the, mm -hmm. the podcast. But there's a lot of talk about we're undermining property rights or we're in Western jurisdictions by doing this and that Russia's property rights have been illegally compromised. I mean, that is an utterly ridiculous line of argument in my mind. I mean, you know, Russia has clearly invaded Ukraine. It's violated Ukrainian property rights. And actually, if our governments decide that they're going to write a big check spending Western taxpayers' money before 
tapping frozen Russian assets. I mean, it, it, what, it, what it actually says is that our governments care more about Russian property rights, care about defending the property rights of the Russian state that's conducted, well, it's invaded Ukraine, it's conducted war crimes and genocide against Ukraine. And actually, you know, they care more about Russian property rights than the property rights of their own taxpayers. <laughs> I think it's just extraordinary, but but anyway. It's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, no, so that part is, I think, quite ridiculous. And probably, well, at least it feels like that argument is slowly being eaten away by a lot of counter-rhetoric, counter-examples. There's another one argument that is also on a moral level is probably quite clear, but legally is a lot more thorny, which is the assets of Western companies in Russia. And I'd love to hear your opinion to what extent it's valid. But, you know, this argument that if you essentially say that the Russian assets are compensation for losses incurred due to the full-scale invasion, well, some of those losses are actually companies that continue to operate in Russia or or have had their assets seized or something like that. So how can we essentially support Ukrainians without having the money ending up in Danone or Pepsi? Yeah. Well, look, on the frozen Russian asset issue, there's lots of lots of counter arguments. Yeah. I would turn the whole arguments on its head and start the starting point. I would say is those people arguing against using frozen Russian assets. I would ask them if we don't, how are we going to fund Ukraine's recovery and reconstruction and, and defense in the war? And what happens if we fail to adequately finance its defense? I'd say, you know, if we fail to fund Ukraine's defense and recovery, you know, Ukraine will fail, Russian tanks will be on the border of Poland, there'll be a huge outmigration of, of Ukrainians, tens of millions will leave, that will create huge social and political problems in Western Europe, we'll have huge defense spending because of that. We simply can't contemplate failure. So we have to make sure Ukraine wins. As I've mentioned, I don't think the Western private sector will adequately fund Ukraine's recovery and reconstruction. I don't think there's political appetite in Western market democracies to fund you know, the, the $50, $100 billion of recovery and reconstruction. We just simply have to use the $350 billion. There's no other choice. Now, in terms of the arguments against, lots of things have been used, as you mentioned. There's concern that if we seize frozen Russian assets in, in Western jurisdictions, Russia will go after Western assets, Western companies' assets in Russia. I would argue that's already happening. Putin is already forcing many of those companies to sell to the Russian state to exit at cents on the dollar. I would also make an argument that, you know, in the end, these Western companies that are operating in Russia, they're now whinging about the risks to their assets because we're going after frozen Russian assets. Now, these are big boys, right? They made their own decisions. Right, It was crystal clear what kind of regime the Putin regime was as far back as 2008 when Russia invaded Georgia. You know, that's not remember, you know, there's a lot of focus on whether or not Russia would use weapons of mass destruction in Ukraine. It already used weapons of mass destruction twice in the territory of a NATO member, the Salisbury and Litvinenko. And yet these Western companies thought it was okay, despite the clear warnings of their own governments, to continue to operate in Russia. We should not be adjusting our national security interests and strategy to bail out uh, Western companies that basically made bad investments in Russia. That's the reality. So I don't buy that argument. The other arguments are the reserve currency argument that if we go after frozen Russian assets, we move from immobilization to freezing to seizing and then allocation to Ukraine. It will send a very bad signal about the safety of our financial systems for other authoritarian regimes. So, for example, you, you possibly could argue that 
you know, the Chinese or the Saudis or whatever, the Gulf states would think twice about keeping their uh, significant foreign exchange reserve assets in our jurisdictions. Arguing against that, I would say, well, the signal has already been sent with Russia's assets and mobilization. Russia is probably not going to get the funds back. So if you're an authoritarian regime, and you, you've probably already moved your assets out of Western jurisdictions. And they're fine. People still use the dollar and you know, it hasn't oh, yeah. lost that much strength. Well, yeah. the, the, the reality <laughs> is there is no alternative. I mean, if, yeah. if the G7 act in unity and say, yes, we are going to freeze and uh, seize and allocate to Ukraine, then, you know, China, for example, has a huge FX reserve position. There are simply no other international jurisdictions where it can dump its reserves, aside from euro, dollar, sterling, Aussie dollar, CAD dollar. It has no alternative, right? I mean, they, they, often these, these regimes don't really trust each other very much. I mean, I can't see the Chinese deciding to put their reserves in Russia. <laughs> you know, the retain India, China, you know, there, there, there are lots of tensions within these countries. So simply they have no alternative. And I think a really strong argument against it is, look, from a counter-argument, freezing, seizing, sends a very strong signal to regimes, authoritarian regimes globally that, you know, they should not do things like invading other countries, conducting genocide and war crimes. They should behave themselves. And if they behave themselves, their assets are not under threat. Yeah. <laughs> so again, very weak arguments. In the end, needs must. If we want Ukraine to have a successful recovery, we have to simply use these assets. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's, it is an extraordinary threshold that Russia has crossed as a result of which its its assets have been immobilized. This is not the kind of thing that, you know, if you're, let's say, somewhat authoritarian, not quite the liberal Democrat, but, you know, you haven't invaded a neighbor, this is not something that you stumble into. Like, it's a major kind of policy decision. They also knew what they were doing. So this isn't sort of something that I, I think would be applied quite widely. I think Russia is a unique case in which assets are seized. Well, I think so. I mean, Saudi Arabia would probably be a, uh, you know, a good next in line. Well, but, but actually, there's a different relationship between Saudi Arabia and, and the Western Alliance. I mean, it's still clearly a partner. Yeah. Right. It's a partner in supply de- supplying, obviously, covered products to Western markets. It's a huge market for Western defense goods. I think that the bar, perhaps, for Saudi Arabia would be far higher than Russia in terms of free- freezing assets. So I just do not think that the dollar and the euro are under threat because of this action. So I'd love to talk a little bit about also what has been done in terms of sanctions on Russia. But maybe before that, just to to dive on this idea of of seizing and using Russian assets in terms of what that could look like. So one story is obviously transferring these assets to Ukraine. I think that's something where we're still relatively far off from in terms of where the discussions are now uh, amongst Western leaders. The other option is essentially to have the interest of these Russian assets be transferred to Ukraine on an ongoing basis. Are we essentially sort of coming up with the idea of building an endowment for Ukraine that would help support the country over the longer period? And is this a way to maybe insulate Ukraine from political risk, including Trump potentially becoming president in sort of a year's time? Well, I've been arguing for at least 18 months that frozen Russian assets are the only option for funding Ukraine's defense and then successful recovery. And uh, it seemed like we were getting nowhere until a few months ago. And then suddenly things changed. I think things changed because there was recognition finally amongst Western political leaders that 
you know, taxpayers won't fund the huge cost, right? And, and obviously the prospect of Trump winning the US elections in November, then assuming office, I think in January 25. I was at Davos recently and one theme was insulating Ukraine against Trump. Uh, <laughs> you know, and so I think there's a realization that if the frozen Russian assets can be earmarked for Ukraine, you know, that provides long-term financing assurances for Ukraine. Now, I would argue that we need to go after the underlying assets. Obviously, the Europeans have got cold feet about that. They've been talking about using the, the returns or a tax on the returns of monies in Euroclear, particularly in Belgium, France, all these kind of places. And the problem with that is, unfortunately, it doesn't really t touch the sides in terms of what Ukraine needs, right? I mean, mm -hmm. the Euroclear profits, I think, last year were around $4 billion dollars. As I mentioned, you know, at the moment, the cost of Ukraine to, you know, the West is about $100 billion in war, and it's going to be $50 billion in, in peace. So $4 billion is not enough. I worry that European leaders or European bureaucrats and lawyers are just, are just using this as a wheeze to buy time to avoid doing what they need to do, which is actually go after the underlying assets, right? And I don't really see the difference, actually, between seizing the underlying assets and seizing the interest on the investment income of, of those assets, frankly. Uh, if you're going to do it, you may as well go after the underlying assets. Now, you can think of some innovative solutions. Obviously, those assets are at the moment invested in high-grade, low-yielding instruments like US, uh, US treasuries or bonds or whatever. You could be, think outside the box, you could maybe invest them in a portfolio of EM assets that could yield 10% a year. So if you think about it, 350 billion, 10% a year, 35 billion a year. Yeah. You could even think of something whereby Ukraine could issue its own recovery bonds, right? Russian assets could buy those, or, or the people holding or, or managing those assets at the moment could buy those on behalf of the Russian state, if you get my drift. Russia's underlying property rights would not be undermined. They would still hold the underlying assets, which in this case will be Ukraine recovery bond. The advantage for Ukraine, it would get big chunks of recovery money, right? Yeah. It could even pay interest to back to the accounts where Russian assets are held. Uh, and ultimately, it, you know, if there's a peace deal and eventually a reparation agreement is, is made, you know, again, they could be a source for that. So, you know, we just need to think outside the box and we always operate by Queensbury rules where Russia, Putin always takes the gloves off. You know, if we're going to win this war, yeah. we have to be cleverer than Putin. And, you know, the European approach of just going after the, you know, low yielding, you know, 4 billion, it's just not enough. Unfortunately, you know, we are two years into this. And some of us, like myself, have been arguing that this project is so important. Ukraine needs some kind of... Ukraine recovery institution that will manage the whole process of recovery, including the funds from frozen Russian assets. And we haven't really gone anywhere on that. I mean, as I said, most important projects since 89, 91, fall of communism. In that period, if you remember the big focus on transition plan to market, the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development was created specifically for that project. It was so important, this transition from plan to market. We created this development institution, EBID. It's been very successful. It's been so successful that it's diversified its activities now beyond emerging Europe to, to Africa and all these other places. It's kind of grown out of its original mandate. And actually, you know, some people said EBRD should take up this role. I don't think so because its shareholder structure is too broad. It includes Russia. Its mandate is too broad now. We need a specific institution that it absolutely its focus is entirely on Ukraine's recovery reconstruction. By creating such an entity, I think you send a really strong signal of the West commitment uh, to this project, 
you you create a very strong leadership of it. It would be a joint entity, partially owned by G7 donors, but partially owned by Ukraine. Sovereign wealth idea, you can imagine that, you know, eventually it would be 100% owned by the Ukrainians. Let's say, you know, when they join the EU, it would become their entity. It could be a partner for private investment into Ukraine. It will help drive reform because it's got leverage, because it's got strong funding. It can borrow on its own behalf. And I just don't really see much thought into this. I mean, it's quite extraordinary. We have the military Rammstein. We really need an economic financial Rammstein for Ukraine. And I strongly think that we need an institution that is going to manage this, this process. First of all, let me just maybe briefly react to the idea of having the Russian assets being used to buy Ukrainian recovery bonds. That sounds absolutely sort of brilliant and historically kind of uh, justified. There's a question of whether these should be interest-bearing at all, but certainly the idea of essentially having Russian money, Russian assets fueling the Ukrainian recovery and then hostage of it, right? So I imagine that they would immediately lose their rights to this asset should there be any further aggression on behalf of Russia against Ukraine. I mean, frankly, I don't see why it couldn't get off the ground, at least partially. But yeah, in terms of the financial Rammstein, and for our listeners, a Rammstein in this context basically means a series of conferences to coordinate aid to Ukraine. What is holding that back? I just think it's about leadership. <laughs> you know, yeah. It's about joined up thinking. It's about Western leaders or a Western leader seizing the initiative and, and saying publicly, this project is so important, we need to do this. And, you know, they need to hire, you know, big characters, people to lead such an entity that have drive, vision, in the end, I, I guess, you know, it's the US that has to lead this and, and make it happen. So, you know, I think we need a, an additional strong signal, strong message from Western liberal market democracies that this project is critical. And I think we can only do that by creating, I would say, a sovereign wealth fund style entity that's co-owned by G7 and, and Ukraine. And its responsibility is everything to do with Ukraine's recovery and reconstruction, right? No, it, it, that, that sounds quite, quite valid. I mean, it feels like the EU is gradually gearing up to take a more leading role in supporting Ukraine and potentially planning for a Trump presidency, where essentially, you know, the role of the US, well, we don't know, right? Trump is, is, is nothing if not unpredictable, but most likely it wouldn't be good for Ukraine. And so it feels like the EU is slowly moving in that direction. But obviously, it's not an organization that moves fast, that is driven by vision, it's driven by process. And that feels like something that is not quite the right fit at the moment. Well, I think the question is, is Europe able to fill the financing gap likely left by a failure to get the $61 billion approved in US Congress and then likelihood that Trump will pull away. And unfortunately, I think it's not. And also, you know, we have to accept, you know, Orban fails to stop the 50 billion euros. But, you know, there's, you know, we have elections coming up in the European Union, you know, um, that, that could change the whole political setup in Europe, right? Yeah. So we, we need to Trump proof uh, Ukraine's financing, and we need to basically <laughs> do the same in Europe. And, and I, you know, there, there's just no alternative but frozen Russian assets. Yeah. And so just to, to drill down on the timing here, so Ukraine has 
receive is is going to receive the 50 billion euro package from the EU there's a question about how quickly that can get over to Ukraine which i think is in quite a difficult financial situation at the moment but looking at the 2024 budget is there any way to get around if the US package doesn't come in well you know no because the 50 billion is a four year program yeah so that's 12 whatever you want to call it 12 and a half etc. for this year, I'd imagine. There's a hole, right? I mean, it has yeah. 40 billion reserves. It could possibly try and issue more domestic debt. It could print money, but that is inflationary. It puts pressure on the exchange rate. It risks macro instability. They need to fill those financing gaps. So I wanted to ask about the strength of Russian sanctions and whether they are strong enough to do the job. What are the big things that we're missing? Should they be ramped up going forward? Yes, yeah, sanctions. Look, sanctions are difficult. I mean, that's the reality. I mean, countries lodging sanctions want to make sure that the impact on the, the target is is more than the backdraft to countries lodging the sanctions. So they're very, very complicated. We're in a global economy where there's lots of interplay and unintended consequences of going down a particular route. And they're not a silver bullet, right? They're only one part of a broader set of policies that are aimed to support Ukraine and, and undermine Russia's ability to, to wage war. You know, I, th- I think we've gone much further than I think anyone would ever have expected, actually. You know, I mean, the energy sector have been sanctioned. No, no one really expected that, swift on banks. I think a lot of the focus now should be just tightening what we have already, right? I mean, there's a, obviously, there's a lot of focus on third countries that are obviously helping Russia avoid sanctions. I think there should be you know, a ramp up in secondary sanctions and warning to those countries of, you know, what happens if they're found out, right? So in the end, I think there's been a change. I mean, if you think originally sanctions were imposed after the annexation of Crimea, it was about getting Russia to change its actions. I think now the reality is Russia has revealed itself to be a major threat, a military security threat to the West. We need to weaken Russian economy long term because we need to reduce Russia's ability to regenerate its conventional military capability that is a threat to us. So whatever happens in Ukraine now, I don't see a significant reduction in sanctions on Russia unless there's a regime change in Russia itself. So they're going to remain in place for a long time. I think ultimately they are working to undermine and weaken the Russian economy. A lot of focus on the fact that Russia, the IMF have recently just adjusted its growth forecast up for Russia this year. But, you know, a couple of percentage points of growth is hardly a reflection of a, a booming economy. It's surviving. Putin's had to make difficult choices, you know, guns versus butter. You know, eventually that will weigh on, well, weigh on Russia's ability to conduct war long term. It will weigh on his political support domestically. And one hopes that ultimately, you know, it will change the decisions been, been made in Moscow. There is one really interesting idea that I am quite supportive of, and it's going to zero, going, well, it's 100% sanctions in a way. It's the West suggesting that in a period, a couple of years down the line, or you set a date two, three years down the line, uh, you signal to your business that all trade with Russia will be subject to sanctions. Unless special designations are arrived at. And obviously it's focused on dual technology stuff that has obviously been a big problem. But yeah. but you force Western business to explain exactly why they need to do business with Russia. Is this product so critical that we have to do it? And I think by doing that, by sending this setting this date for, for zero trade with Russia in effect, you will in- further encourage international business to get out of Russia. Yeah. You know, continue to squeeze the Russian economy. 
but you know, with the designations, it still allows you in where critical areas to continue to have access to Russian, you know, whatever it is, commodities or whatever, where you absolutely need it. But I think it, it reduces the ability of Russia to get some of those dual use goods that it's been using to, to continue to manufacture a lot of this high tech stuff in defense sector. Yeah, no, that, that sounds really interesting in terms of where this where this all can go. It feels like something that would be quite difficult for for political leaders to, especially for the EU, that that, that would just be so difficult to to go through. But yeah, ultimately, I mean, you need to you need to show that there's consequences for the actions. So, turning to the topic of the week, President Volodymyr Zelensky decided that he wants to dismiss the head of the armed forces, Valery Zeluzhne. Zaluzhny, by all accounts, did not agree to resign of his own volition. It looks like Zelensky wants him out, but is struggling to find a replacement. But in any case, what we're seeing is potentially quite difficult battle on the uh, Ukrainian domestic political scene. And I think uh, more broadly, a resurgence of domestic politics. In a way, that is not surprising. I think people are maybe overestimating the ability for a country that is under war, that is a democracy where people can voice their opinions relatively unchallenged to stick to a consistent political line for two years, right? So I think it, it was always a little bit too optimistic to assume that it would be completely untroubled waters throughout the whole period of time. But we do have a major conflict between arguably the two most important people in the country. How is that kind of political risk factoring in to, I think, first of all, discussions with potential financial partners, bondholders, Western leaders, G7, in terms of putting together financial resources to fund the Ukrainian ongoing needs and then recovery? And secondly, more broadly, how is that likely to impact perhaps private capital and and, and the broader set of stakeholders? Well, it's a bit difficult for me to comment on on what's going on domestically uh, on the politics side in Ukraine, because I simply don't know. I'm not in the corridors of power where that's happening. I mean, obviously, you know, Ukraine's remarkable defense over the last two years has partially owed to the fact that you have seen unity. The opinion polls show, you know, strong support for Zelensky, strong support for Zelensky. One has to be worried if we're in a scenario where, you know, that unity is under threat, right? We want the country to pull together to ultimately defeat Putin. If we're going to see squabbling and infighting within the elites, that's that's really disappointing, obviously. But as you mentioned, I mean, you know, Ukraine is a democracy, you know, the elections are scheduled for this year. One obviously would like democratic process to play out, but it is a war, right? So, I mean, you could understand why elections may not necessarily happen. All the territory is still occupied by Russia. A lot of Ukraine's population are not in a secure situation, can vote. Lots of soldiers are obviously away from their places of, of, of home or origin, whatever, uh, and they're able to vote. It's, it's challenging, but it, it's definitely a concern. I mean, one, one would hope that we don't see, or these kind of arguments are kind of resolved, that we don't see very public squabbles and and focus continues to be on ensuring a victory in war and then focusing on what we need to do or what Ukraine needs to do to ensure a successful recovery and reconstruction. Absolutely brilliant discussion. Timothy, thank you so much for joining us on Powerlines. My pleasure. Thank you. Slava Ukraine, yeah? Yeah, I am Slava. Thanks so much for listening to this season of Powerlines, from Ukraine to the world. A big thank you to Timothy for his time today and to all of our amazing guests across the whole season. While we're off the air, be sure to keep reading all our coverage of the war through the Kiev Independent website. 
And be sure to check out KI Insights and subscribe to our newsletter to understand the internal dynamics of what's happening behind the scenes in Ukraine. Don't forget to subscribe and rate Powerlines wherever you get your podcasts, as it really helps others find our show. To find more podcasts like Powerlines, look up Message Heard wherever you're listening to this podcast and find us on our website at messageheard.com or on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by looking up at Message Heard. You can also follow The Cave Independent on Twitter and Facebook at Cave Independent and Instagram at Cave Independent underscore official to get the latest news and stay up to date with our coverage. You can also support The Cave Independent through our website.